everybody. <laughs> Let's all stand together as people join us from all over the world, staring at the screen, wondering what in the world is going on. <laughs> as well as our campuses. Uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your gifts and kindness to us. And God, we're thankful for your word, the word of God, the instruction that we get from the Bible. We pray that you would give to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you so that we can grow in our faith and be more effective in what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated, and they can pass the buckets around here at our Green Bay campus. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, we are going through the New Testament, starting at the book of Acts, and then uh, hitting all the epistles, trying to do it all in order as things happened. We got, uh, I don't know how far did we get in Acts, about chapter 12, and then this is about the time that James wrote his first epistle. So James, this is not the Apostle James. The Apostle James had been killed by Herod. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was now the big administrator in the church. Uh, despite what a lot of people say, Peter and Paul and all these guys never became the popes, if you will, of the New Testament church. They weren't the big administrators. Uh, as far as we can tell, the, uh, all the apostles, none of them took an administrative role in anything. They uh, intentionally stayed away from it so they could just go and proclaim the good news of Jesus. Uh, so that meant they turned it over to other people. That's where you got the first deacons from. Now James is a leader in the church. And uh, so he writes this epistle encouraging the first group of Christians. It starts out uh, by saying... Uh, James, a servant of God of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So he is uh, literally talking to Jewish Christians. Because at this point, that's the bulk of Christianity, are Jews who uh, are turning to Jesus as the Messiah, which is no small thing. I mean, these people for thousands of years have been looking forward to the promise of the Messiah. Um, for Jesus to come and you know, everybody had to hear all about all these miracles and everything else, and now they're proclaiming this Jesus as the Messiah. This is the guy, this is it. Uh, they're all, many of them are responding to the message of Christianity, and it's growing wildly. And James is the first one to write an epistle, is what we call it, which is a fancy religious name for a letter. <laughs> it's not a letter, it's an epistle. It's just a letter, he wrote these letters, and he's the first one to write. And he writes to them, and he's just, it's just basic instructions to the Christians, the new Christians that are serving Jesus and these new churches that are going on, and he's giving them advice and uh, telling them how to deal with temptation, watch what you say, don't go off on people. Uh, he really <laughs> beats the snot out of rich Christians here in a minute. <laughs> we'll see. So uh, we'll put it all in context and we'll take a look at it. Right now, we'll pick it up in chapter four. And we'll start at verse one again in chapter four. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And the answer is yes, of course. People get mad because they can't get what they want. Now, people are so convinced that what they want is so righteous and so true and so holy that clearly they should go to fight to get what they want. And that's really not the response we should be having. I get you want what you want, but you gotta be careful. Don't let your desires and expectations turn you into a mean person. Don't let that make you miserable. And I'm convinced, I mean, you know, as I travel around the world, aside from pastoring the church in here and stuff, but I talk to couples all the time, and, and I'm convinced the major problem, one of the major problems, there's a couple of major psycho ones, but uh, with, with, with marriage is just expectations. Many of them just unrealistic expectations. People who literally get their view of what marriage and relationships are about from movies. And then they have real life, and holy cow, they're all upset because things aren't the way they thought. And most of my conversations with people are just, calm down, for heaven's sakes. Anyway, so these are where people get mad because they don't get what they want and what they expect. So James says, look, you desire, but you don't have, so you kill. Now, I don't know if James is an, a hyperbolist, which means exaggerating to make points. Actually, I think Jesus was a bit of a hyperbolist. I really do. I mean, when he said, 
if your eye, if, you know, if you're checking out hot chicks, pluck your eyeballs out. I don't think he really wanted people plucking their eyeballs out. Or a lot of us would be walking around with a cane right now. Okay, but he spoke in really strong terms to make the point. Stop it. Okay? You know, cut off your hand. I mean, again, many of us would have stubs on the ends of our arms because our hand's getting us in trouble. And uh, so I think Jesus, and oftentimes in the Bible, they made very strong statements. I don't know that he's really writing to Christians who are literally killing each other to get stuff. But he might be, uh, you know, a hyperbole. He's like saying, you know, never in a million years would I let that happen. Well, that's hyperbole, okay? We just, it's making a very strong statement. Or, as I mentioned last week, he could be talking about, you know, killing in your heart. Because Jesus said, you know, if you hate your brother, it's the same as killing them. So maybe that. But he uses phrases like this uh, throughout here, where it's a pretty exaggerated statement. So, so anyway, he said, you desire, you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. But you don't have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive. Now, this is radical at this point to make a statement like this because Jesus thought, ask and you will receive. Whatever you so you desire, ask God and he will give it to you. Everything Jesus says, ask God, ask God. He'll give it to you, he'll give it to you, he'll give it to you. And James is going, yeah, not exactly. Now, is he contradicting Jesus? No, he's clarifying. That's what people say. The Bible's full of contradictions. No, the Bible's full of clarifications. And there's a big difference, okay? Certainly, the Lord, born without sin, God in the flesh, probably didn't comprehend people praying selfish, rotten, dirty, nasty prayers. Right? So his idea of prayer is of the purest of heart, man, you just pray pure in your heart, God's gonna give you what you want. And that's true. But James is pointing out, yeah, well, when you don't get what you want, it's probably because your heart isn't so pure. Uh, John also makes this a little bit clearer when we get to, to uh, the Apostle John's letter and points out there's a reason why people don't get answers to their prayers because they tend to get a little crazy. So he says, when you ask, you don't receive. Why? Because you ask with the wrong motives that you might spend what you get on your pleasures. A lot of people just, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Especially money, everybody loves that. So then, James goes off on them, again, using very strong language. He says, you adulterous people. Now, he's not writing to the people at the bar, okay? He's not writing to, you know, evil, horrible people. You know, like Vikings fans. <laughs> I'm just teasing, all right? So I'm <laughs> just teasing. <laughs> Go Green Bay. Okay, so he's not talking to wicked, horrible, awful people. He's writing to Christians. And he says, you adulterous people. Whoa, what are you talking about? These are very devout people. First of all, they were very devout Jews in the first place. And these people, they just really, you know, kept the straight and narrow all the time. Uh, but uh, on top of it is Christians, but what's he talking about? He says, don't you know that friendship of the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That's why they were adulterous. Because they're trying to love Jesus, but trying to love a culture that was really against that. And we still have this problem today. There are people who claim to be very devout. Christians, they got kind of one foot in Jesus and another foot in everything else and doing things they shouldn't be doing, and most of these people over here have no idea they're even Christians because they play that whole game, and uh, the Bible calls that an adulterous relationship, just like if you were married, but you're dating other women. <laughs> that's a problem, okay? So that's what he's doing. He's yelling at them for not being true to their faith. He says, or do you think the scripture says without reason that he, talking about God, jealously longs for the spirit that he's has called to dwell within us. This life of God that's in us, the life that's in you, God loves that. And he wants to be one with you. And he's jealous about these things. Not from the psycho crazy version of jealousy, you know, every time you know, someone's fearful their spouse is gonna be doing something. But uh, uh, the godly kind of jealousy, which literally means intolerant of unfaithfulness. You say, my wife is jealous. Well, if she's intolerant of you cheating, that's a good kind of jealousy, all right? 
This is the kind of jealousy we're supposed to have. You shouldn't put up with this kind of nonsense. And God doesn't put up with this kind of nonsense in us when we try to love uh, a very broken culture, and especially when you're doing things that are wrong in that culture and trying to love Jesus at the same time. So, but he throws it out to us. He gives us more, more grace. Praise God. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So now he starts to reason with them how to get to a place of humility. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Clearly this guy had not watched contemporary Christianity on TBN. Because, oh no, God never wants anybody to be sad. God just wants you to be happy. The Lord wants to bless you, give you everything you want. Hallelujah. Jesus just wants to put a smile inside you. You should never have to, never have, not, we don't want anybody to feel bad. Never, ever, ever. Really? Well, what is this? Grieve, mourn, wail? Ooh. <laughs> What's he talking about? A sense of sorrow. This idea that in Christianity you should never be sorrowful about things is patently absurd. And as you've heard me teach many times, I don't buy into this idea that Christians should never feel guilty. Now, you've got the crazy version of Christianity that everything is guilty. You know, because they come up with all these rules and stuff like that. They're just, it's not even in the Bible. They just pull it out of their ears and come up with all these rules and restrictions and God's going to kill you if you don't do everything. Well, yeah, some of you were raised in that kind of church. Always guilty for something. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you do something really wrong, you should feel bad. Everybody say bad. All right? I mean, don't you? People, they think they should never feel bad. Christians who tell people they should never, ever, 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 ever feel bad. And I don't believe that. This whole idea of, of trying to get people so they never feel bad about, of course, we live in this insane culture today where no one should ever feel bad about anything. And the worst thing you could do is hurt somebody's feelings. You know, that's why I was watching some psychos on the news talking about they were upset because some Christians pray in public. And they think that shouldn't be allowed. And someone said, well, why? What do you care about it? Well, it might make someone feel uncomfortable. Who cares? You get uncomfortable? Move away. If I'm with someone who stinks, I move away. All right, if you don't like something. But this whole culture, you can never, ever inconvenience anybody, make anybody feel bad about anything. And I just think it's crazy. I don't think Jesus called us to make psychopaths out of people. Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples, not psychopaths. You know what a psychopath is? It's someone who never feels bad about anything. Literally, look it up. It's the clinical definition. These are people who they can take a cat and put it in a microwave and it blows up and they, they laugh. It doesn't bother them. They can shoot someone and it doesn't bother them. They can kill people. These are literally psychopaths. They have that, it's like that their conscience has been actually seared with an iron. They have no response to anything. They never feel bad about anything. I, I don't think that's God's version of grace. We become a bunch of psychopaths and we can do all kinds of, we never feel bad. I have this old fashioned concept. If you do something bad, you should feel bad. Now, the good news, you don't have to feel condemned. Come to God and repent, which is what he's saying. Come to God. If you've done something bad, come to God and say, Father, forgive me. If you need to cry, cry. You really hurt somebody? You hurt God? You need to cry a little bit. Make things right. So James is advocating for this sense of repentance and sorrow. Paul writes, we'll eventually get to it, that godly sorrow brings repentance. A lot of people never have repentance because they never feel sorrowful about anything. And again, the world of the church and I use it in a very broad sense, not all churches like this, but boy, it's hard not to get the sense in contemporary Christianity that nobody's ever supposed to feel bad about anything. And it's just patently absurd. If you will humble yourself before the Lord, he writes, that the Lord will lift you up. Then he goes on to say, now brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. Now, remember, he's writing to Jewish Christians. Jewish people were obsessed with obeying the law. Nobody wanted to be viewed as a lawbreaker. Remember, he said earlier that if you break one thing in the law, well, now you're a lawbreaker, okay? 
It means you're guilty of law breakings, which they were real sensitive to that. To us, a phrase like that doesn't really mean jack, quite frankly. Most of us are pretty familiar with the idea that we're sinners. <laughs> you're a sinner. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know? I mean, it is, which is good. That's a little bit of humility, okay? We talk about we're all sinners saved by grace. We all need God's grace. We all need forgiveness and stuff. These people were very, 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 very devout religious people who never wanted to be viewed as those who are violating the Old Testament law of Moses. So when he gets on them and says, listen, when you're judging your brother, you're a lawbreaker. The law he's speaking of is you should love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so that makes you a lawbreaker. Again, that was, ooh, that's like really rebuking to them. I don't think anybody feels shocked by such a phrase to us, but that's, you have to look at the people he's writing to. Okay, uh, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, talking about God. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? All right, then he goes into a next thing that's irritating him. <laughs> he's going off on a few things. It's interesting, he's really, he's encouraging and correcting at the same time, which is okay. Again, church doesn't have to always be about making everybody feel good. You know, sometimes a little is, is good for people. And, uh, and that's what he's doing, and he's smacking up a bit. Now, here's something that irritates him. He hears people talking about their plans. And, you know, we got this plan. We're going to do this. We're going to open this business. We're going to try to, you know, in three years, we're going to be doing this, 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 this. And James hear this, hears this, and he hears Christians talking like this, and it really irritates him. Uh, why? It's not bad to have plans. What is bad is to be arrogant and to assume that you're not going to have any troubles. And he challenges them Reality check. You don't really know what's going to happen, so let's read it. Now listen, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow we're going to go to this or that city, we're going to spend a year there, we're going to carry on business, we're going to make money. He says, why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a while, a little while, and then vanishes. <laughs> he's trying to get them, again, he's yelling at them about being proud and arrogant. Just talking about humility. Now these guys again, just, well, I'm going to do this. I'm gonna, yeah, it's, it's the arrogance of it that's irritating him. Okay, reminding him, hey, don't think so highly of yourself. You know what you are? <sighs> all right? Now we all hope that we'll leave some kind of a legacy that people will remember us. And they probably will for a few months. <laughs> but the reality is, I mean, you get a couple of generations removed, nobody's going to remember any of us. We're... <sighs> You know, unless they put a statue of me out in front. <laughs> and three generations from now, people go, who is that? You know, that's what we are. So it's a little humility. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And you'll hear Christians who use the proper phraseology, Lord willing, we're going to do this. And, you know, if, you know hopefully God's going to bless us and we'll be able to do that. That's a good thing. That's, that's what the Bible's teaching us to do. That, you know, a little humility is our plans, but everything we do is subject to God. How many of you have noticed that not everything that you plan happens? <laughs> Anybody have this revelation? <laughs> you know? Now, Again, I don't think he's, and he's not saying don't plan. He says, if the Lord wills, we'll do this. So it's good to have plans. Don't just walk around life, just, uh, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, but just some humility, all right? As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. Again, it's the arrogance that's ticking him off. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. All right, now he goes psycho on people with money. Let's read what he has to say. Now listen, you rich people, you ought to weep and wail. Again, with the weeping and the wailing. All right? Because of the misery that's coming on you. Whoa. I mean, he's really mad about some of these things. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Oh, relax, but he's mad. He's really rebuking these people because there are a group of Christians at this time that he's writing to. Again, this is real early in Christianity who are some pretty wealthy people and life is set for them 
And what he doesn't like is the arrogance that comes along with it. Which, listen, money is not bad. The Bible doesn't say money is evil. The Bible says the love of money is evil. And make no mistake, money has a very corrupting influence on people. I pray that all of us will grow in enough maturity that we can handle money and that God will bless you with money. I would like to see this church become insanely wealthy. (laughs) Why? It'll help us to advance the kingdom of God. We're still a relatively young church. As I travel, I was just in California, man. I was, you know, half of the churches, I mean, the youth pastor's probably, you know, 87 in some of these churches. I mean, these, these, these guys have been around forever. But they, they are filled with insanely wealthy Christian people who what they did is took godly biblical principles that I'm teaching to you right now, and they put them to work. And they've been doing it since they were 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. And some of them at this point are, I'll tell you, you follow God's plan, you can be very, very successful in life. And I think that's great. And they use this money. These people give millions of dollars to missions every year. You know, I think we were on track for 300,000 this year, whatever it was, you know. It was just good. It was just up. We're double where we were. But this church is our size that gives literally, I'm not exaggerating, our size that gives, not just for the church, but gives to missions. That's the above and beyond a million dollars. Our size. But these are churches who are filled with people who've been learning this stuff and working this stuff out in their life, learning to tithe, learning to honor God for 10, 15, 30, 40, 50 years. At some point, that has a great impact. And they grow financially, they're being blessed financially, and they're able to make a big impact. I'm all for that. But in this case, these guys are in bad place because apparently their attitude is really bad. Uh, he said, you've hoarded wealth in the last days. And then what's really ticking him off is because they're such greedy little people that they're really hurting the people that, they, that work for them and stuff. These are guys, these are Christian guys who wouldn't pay people who work for them very much money. They could barely survive because they just kept everything for themselves. Uh, you know, I think... Rich people, by and large, in our culture get, get a bad rap because of all this, you know, fighting between, you know, the haves and have-nots in this country. But without mistake, there are people who are wealthy who would just screw you over and wouldn't think twice about it. And that's what the Bible's talking against. He says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Again, I don't know if they're literally killing people. I presume he's, again, being very strong in his statements. But the reality is, it's the reality check to those who do well, and you do have business, you know, take care of the people that work for you and stuff, and be nice. It doesn't mean you gotta give away all your money. He doesn't say that. But, you know, if you have people who work for you, and you're doing really well, and you give them as little as possible, and they can barely survive, this is not good, and God does not look kindly upon it. You can't control what non-Christians do, but this is to Christians. These were Christians who were doing this, wealthy Christians who were putting the screws of people that they shouldn't be doing that to. And James talks to them in the strongest of terms there. All right? It's not bad to be a wealthy person. It's bad to be a wealthy person who is a jerk. All right. Now, uh, then he goes and he talks to them about being patient when they suffer. And remember, he's jumping all over the place from one thought to another. These people had been suffering. This was the early church. They already had some persecution when Paul saw eventually called Paul, you know, was going through and persecuting Christians. That's why they were scattered all over the place. That's why he's writing to these people who've scattered. He's writing to the people who've scattered. Um, and just trying to encourage them in their sufferings. They are they're just seeing the tip of the spear, though, at this point. We know historically that at some point, not too many years after this, that the Roman Empire just goes ape on these people. And I don't know what the numbers of Christians were that were arrested, tortured, thrown to the lions in the Colosseums. I mean, it was, it was bad. They suffered really, really, a lot of martyrs. A lot of people laid down their lives for their faith. And this is just the beginning of, of some of the suffering that they're gonna be seeing. 
So in verse seven, he says, now be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord comes. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. He's not out there just looking at the corn every five minutes, like, where is it, where is it? You know, they're patient. It takes time. What he's saying, the kingdom of God is taking time. They don't know how much time at this point. No way, unless they had a revelation from God, do these people comprehend that I'd be talking to you 2,000 years later. I mean, when they said Jesus was coming, they thought, he's coming right back, all right? Uh, But as it turns out, (laughs) the Lord is very patient because he wants to build his church. He wants to build a, a nation of people, the Bible says, that are just totally committed to him. So he says, uh, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Again, what are they doing? They're grumbling against one another. Uh, And as I said last week, part of this is kind of encouraging to me. Because sometimes we think that the early church was so holy and they were so crazy and they were so amazing and they saw, you know, they don't, they didn't have the problems we have today. Apparently they did. You got rich ones who are screwing over the poor ones. You got people getting mad and yelling at each other because they can't get what they want. And you got others who are grumbling against each other. Not that we've ever heard that before. All right? And uh, so he's just reminding them. See, even with God being so powerful in their midst, they still struggled with the flesh. And that's what we all do. Our faith inside of us is just burning and it's alive. And, you, and you'll, I've spoke many times about this. There's this war that goes on inside of us. That part of you that just wants to do the right thing and the other part of you that does not. <laughs> and it fights you, man. Now the Bible teaches us how to win that battle. But we see that they were struggling just like we do. That's the good news. All right. Now, brothers and sisters, he says, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Again, to non-Jewish Christians, that makes no sense because we didn't know anything about prophets. Well, they did. The Jews were raised, you know, with the teachings of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and all these stuff, many of them who had suffered much. Um, he says, so take as, a, as an example of suffering, the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. He said, you've heard of Job's perseverance. Well, the Jewish Christians had heard of Job's perseverance. We can know, hear of it now because we have, see, they didn't have all this everywhere. You know, we have it. Uh, in fact, it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of you here don't really know anything about Job. In fact, when you read it in the Bible, you think it says job because it's spelled J-O-B. What are you doing? Oh, I'm reading about this job over here. I don't know. I need a job. I thought I'd start there. Um, it's, it's actually pronounced Job. Those of you who don't know the story, let me give you the mini version. Job's going along. Everything is good in his life. He is blessed beyond measure. The devil comes and says to God, yeah, 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 he loves you. And God says, hey, see how much this guy loves me? He says, ah, doesn't mean anything. You take away from him what he has and he'll spit in your face. And God says, okay, let's find out. Now, I hope they never have that discussion about me. Because <laughs> I would not want to go through what he would. So God allowed the devil to come in and just wreak hell in this man's life. He, all, all of his property was destroyed. All the animals were killed. What do you have, six, seven sons or daughters or whatever? They were all killed in a day. In fact, when you read it, it says, one guy came and says, oh man, this horrible thing happened. And while he was yet speaking, another comes running. Your kids were just all killed. The building, this wind came and just collapsed and killed them all. They were squished to death. And while they were talking, another one came out. Just one thing after another and lost everything. Just like that. And then he gets sick. And he's covered from head to toe with boils. How? And he is just miserable and Satan's waiting for him to start cursing God Uh, and then Job's wife comes along and she starts egging him on which I think is really fascinating the devil knew how to get to Job he killed everybody but the wife (laughs) I'm just saying you know (laughs) you couldn't let a building fall on her you know no you left her here 
So she comes along and says, ah, and you can imagine how heartbroken she was that she lost the kids too. I mean, she's just bitter and angry at God. Why don't you just curse God and die? Here's a word of encouragement. <laughs> if you ever feel like telling your spouse to drop dead, you're not the first one to have that thought. And uh, so this, this is what happens. And, uh, and then his friends all show up. And his friends say, man, you, you must have done something wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. You had to do something, man. There's a lot of bad stuff happening. And then, so all that we just read you is like in the first chapter or two of, of Job, <laughs> Job. And then all of these chapters that come after it is Job sitting and talking with his friends and they're philosophizing. And you want a really miserable read? Pick that up tonight before you go to bed and read to these guys. These, these guys are just going through their philosophies of this and that and this, and they're just, ay, 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 Finally, we get to the end of the book, praise God. We get to the end. Uh, God comes up, and now he blesses him because he was faithful in all of that. He had his issues. You can imagine you'd have issues going through that suffering. Even Job had his you know, frustrations, and God had to even say, hey, hey, settle down. Who are you? Where were you at when I was making the heavens and the earth? Okay, okay. But you, seriously, you know, you ever feel frustrated? <laughs> you don't even want to tell God your frustration? Job had some serious frustrations. And God kind of settled him down a bit. But then he blesses him. And the Bible says he has way more many kids after that. His end was much greater than his beginning. And he ended up way wealthier and more powerful than he'd ever dreamed after going that, through that horrible, horrible test in his life. A lot of analogies there. We all have various tests and stuff that we go through. Uh, but if you just hang in there and trust God, you know, that's why he says, remember Job. You know, you think you're going through a hard time, God has forsaken you. He hasn't forsaken you. Well, if I really had faith, this would never happen. No, no, that was the televangelist who told you that. All right, this is God and Job, remember Job, he says. This is what happened in Job. But look how he succeeded and how God blessed him. So he just reminds them. Again, if you're a non-Jewish Christian, you wouldn't know what he's talking about. But so there. Now you know the mini version of the story of Job. <laughs> Where am I? Uh, you've heard of, the, of Job's patient perseverance and have seen that the Lord finally brought about the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So... Everybody knows what he's talking about. Above all, my brothers and sisters, don't swear. Now, he's not talking about getting mad and using God's name in vain or saying nasty words. <laughs> I was going to say a few, but I'll behave myself. All right? So he didn't say, you know, you can't say these words. That's not what he's talking about when he says don't swear, which you probably shouldn't do that as well. <laughs> but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who make vows to God. And you tell God, I swear, if you just get me through, I swear, I will do this for you, and I'll do that, and I won't kick any more puppies, and, and I'll be nice to all the kids, cats in my neighborhood, and I swear to you, God, I'll do all this. You know, or God, I swear, I'm gonna fast and pray until, and, and what he says, no, 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 zip it. Don't do that. Not by heaven or earth or by anything else. I swear to God. You know, that's actually a phrase Christians are not supposed to ever say. We've all said it from time to time. But I catch myself. I want to say, you know, when I'm trying to tell the truth, I say, I, honestly, I swear to God, I'd, and I'm about to say it, and I don't say it, because I remember what James says. Don't do that. You're not supposed to swear to God or anything else. I swear, heaven knows. Heaven is my witness. We make statements like that. Literally, we're not supposed to make statements like that. He just says, don't make those kinds of statements. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Why? Because more than likely something will happen and you can't live up to what you swore you would do. If you're going to do something, just do it. Now, Jesus taught the exact same thing. He said the exact same thing. Don't swear by heaven. Don't swear by earth. Don't make all these vows. You can't change anything anyway. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, there are Christians who despite what Jesus, I think, is blatantly saying and what James says, how do you miss this, who still think that it's appropriate to make vows. I have a brother, <laughs> my brother Eddie. Uh, he's a lot uglier than I am. But uh, he's a smart guy, he's a great guy, he's a pastor stuff. He wrote a whole book on vows. 
You know, The Vow is the name of his book. You can look it up on Amazon. Don't get it. Anyway, <laughs> and you know, I have argued this with him. And no, no, we should make these. And it's good. And he wrote a whole book on why Christians should make these vows and swear to God they'll do this, that, and the other. And I just, I made it, take it out of our bookstore. You know, it's, dude, you're crazy. Which just shows, I'm telling you, when people get set in their opinions, there is nothing you can do to change them. I guarantee you. There's people with all kinds of doctrinal positions that listen to me that if we got on their particular doctrine, you could show them written in blood in the sky and they still would never change their opinion about this, that, or the other. People are just stubborn. He is convinced he's just wrong. Now, obviously, he's not here to defend himself. And I don't care, all right? But he's just wrong, all right? But we get along, we're fine. We argue all the time about everything and he's wrong about everything. So, <laughs> so... <laughs> But I don't know, how do you get this wrong? Well, if you listen to him, he's got this big, complicated explanation of what this really means. I always warn people, when you take a simple verse of scripture and it takes a big, complicated explanation to tell you what it really means, you need to walk away because I think they're crazy. And people do this. They get so firm in their doctrines, they tend to be a little extreme, then they run into scriptures that contradicts their doctrine. As I've said before, nothing's more frustrating to your doctrine than reading the Bible. Because we all have our opinion. This is what God does all the time. Then you read this verse, that's oh, not really, ooh, well, that really means, and then you can jump through hoops trying to explain it. It's just relax. Maybe you're not as smart as you think you are and just trying to get a balance here. All right? Again, they're not uh, contradictions. They're clarifications is what it is. James, in as glad how you can miss this, my brother, the vow. I got a vow for him. All right. Of course, he comes back. Well, you made a vow when you got married. Are you against people making vows when they're wedding? Well, again, the, uh, the institution of marriage, all you're doing is you're agreeing with the contract and the commitment. You know, you're not staying married because you swear to God, I'll say, man, that's, that's not what we're talking about. I don't have a problem with that. There are Christians, though, there are smaller groups of Christians that take this so seriously, they don't have wedding vows because they think you should never make a vow. Well, that's the other swing on the thing. Uh, you know, again, I think he's talking about swearing to God. God, you do this. And you make all these promises you can't keep. That's why you'd be condemned. Or I swear to God I didn't do it. No, heaven's my witness. And you know, just, you know, all these stuff we pull in heaven and stuff to make our arguments, which you're not supposed to do. I don't think. There's Christians, actually, that are opposed to, if you go to court, put your hand on the Bible and swear to tell the truth, they won't do that. For religious reason, they'll say, well, I'll tell you the truth, but I will not lay my hands on the Bible and swear. I believe that's the wrong thing to do. And every judge everywhere will say fine to that. Uh, there's people who don't believe in the Bible for other reasons. And they're atheists who are not going to swear on the Bible, so whatever. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> enough of persecuting my brother in abstentia. All right, now, then he goes on and uh, he starts talking about faith. He says, if anyone, is anyone among you in trouble? If so, let them pray. If anyone's happy, let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone you, um, among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, and he says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, which I'll use an analogy here in just a minute. But uh, so now we have this thing. Now, uh, I have this message coming up that I'm going to be uh, teaching called Just Don't Pray for People Without Finding Out What It Is, that they, What's Really Going On. Because what happens oftentimes, people will come and they're just a little crazy. And when you just quickly pray for people, you know, maybe even after church, people come forward all the time and say, you know, you know, uh, will, you, will you pray for me? I, I, I'm, I'm really struggling with guilt. Okay, well, and then you just start praying for them. No, just find out why they're struggling with guilt. Why do you feel guilty? Well, I, I've been stealing stuff at work. Well, how about you stop that? <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? But when you just pray for them, they feel better, and now you have actually sealed stupid into them. And then they go out. I had this one lady came to me. She was all upset because she, God wasn't give, answering her prayer. Wanted me to pray for her. And you know what Christians do? I, I know this sounds crazy. I, I'll preach it. 
I'm just, you're getting the warm up to it. <laughs> but uh, Chris, every, I travel all these all around the world to churches and stuff like that. Almost every church at the end, people come forward and pray and everybody's just praying all these prayer parties and stuff like that. What people do, come up, say this is what they need and people just pray and all they're doing, I think in a lot of cases, is sealing stupidity. Because they're not asking questions. Again, the Bible says don't lay hands on people quickly. Ask them questions. Find out what's going on. This lady comes to see, I just, oh God, but pray God will give me what I want. I just, you know, so what is it that you want? Well, I can't tell you. Well, then I ain't praying for you. Find out later she's mad because she was wanting somebody else's husband. I'm not making this stuff up. She was mad at God because God was praying that she would get that guy. Well, you know what? 99% of every evangelical Christian in the world, if she would have come forward with a prayer, was, well, let's pray together. Father, I just pray right now in the name of Jesus, you desire to give us the desires of our heart, and we can walk in the joy of the Lord. And you said, if any two or three agree, and we agree right now together, that you would just get this lady, have a breakthrough, and she can start getting what she wants. Well, you know what that prayer is going to do? It's going to go, I'm going to fall on the carpet. Because God is not listening to that stupidity. But now she walks away sealed in crazy. Well, praise the Lord, I just got my prayer. Just praying I'm gonna go steal somebody else's husband. Praise God. <laughs> you think I'm making this stuff up? I'm not. Any of you who've ever come to pray for me, you know the first thing I do is I grill you. I'm having a problem. What do you mean you're having a problem? Well, I don't have any money. Why don't you have any money? You have a good job, well, yeah. Well, why don't you have any money? You know, I keep finding find out. You're going to the casino and gambling away your paycheck. Now, do you know what 99% of every church Christian would have done? Brother, let's pray together. Father, we want to know that he will, you will meet every need according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And we're trusting you in faith. And we pray and we put oil squishing all over your forehead. And we send you away in your stupidity. <laughs> Praise God. Now we're preaching. All right? So I'm not saying don't pray for people. I'm just saying find out what's going on so you're not sealing stupid. And you want your prayers answered. The Bible says if you agree together. How can you agree? You don't even know what's going on. All you're doing is see. I don't think church is supposed to be an environment where people can come forward and have their dysfunctions encouraged. So he's saying this. He's saying, when you come for prayer, let's have a conversation. What's going on in your life? As we just confess your faults to one another. We can't confess your faults to one another if you just come to pray for me. I'm sick. Well, you know, why are you sick? What's, what's going on and stuff? Because there is a correlation. You'll see this. Now, there's people who don't like this. And I won't get into trying to defend everybody's <laughs> viewpoint on everything, but... There's people who believe that under no circumstances would God ever, ever, ever put sickness on you. But the Bible is very clear that there's people who are dissipating God who get very sick. Well, then they have an argument. Well, it's not God he's doing. He's letting Satan do it like he did with Job. It wasn't really God. It was Really, it's a difference without a distinction. The reason Job got the snot kicked out of him is because God said, okay. Did God himself do it? No. But who allowed it? God. <laughs> okay, again, a conversation I hope they never bring me up with, or they're having. Sometimes bad things happen to people that as really it's the hand of God kicking your butt. It is. Sometimes even sickness. You say, no, everybody who's sick is because they're just, no, 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 no. I didn't say that. But I'm saying let's have a conversation. What's going on? What's going on in your life? You're doing everything okay? But see, we don't like, we, we like this version of Christianity that's a drive-through Christianity. In fact, I'm certain if we had a drive-through version of church, most people would just drive through. <laughs> Pull up, say what they need for prayer, prayer for them, pick up, pick it up in the window. Randy will pray for you when you get to the window. <laughs> praise God, praise God, amen. Five bucks, go. All right. <laughs> and we like this version, we just come in and we don't really share anything. And what are we saying? Well, we're, we're praying for the sick, yeah, but he implies a pretty, a conversation at some point. You know, how you doing? What's going on? Is there anything happening in your life? There's all kinds of people who are sick. They're just sick. My wife's sick. It's not because she's out there doing horrible things. All kinds of people have been sick. And it's not, but there are people who, bad stuff starts coming in their life, including sickness, because they are doing bad things. I remember one time I had a couple come to my office, you know, and they were doing really bad things, as you can well imagine. 
And they're saying, man, you say God's gonna answer our prayers and stuff, but everything's going wrong. We're so sick and stuff. Why isn't God answering our prayers? Hello? Well, this is why you need to stop. And the good news is they finally stopped. They made it right, and all of a sudden, boom, prayers started getting answered. It doesn't mean God hates you. The Bible says if God really loves you, he will smack you upside the head. That's what it teaches. Now, it doesn't say that literally. That's the Mark Gunger translation. I need to do my own translation. Put it in plain English. What it says is the discipline of the Lord. That means smack you upside the head. Okay? Sometimes we get smacked upside the head. That's, just, that's not a sign that God hates you. It means God loves you. In fact, he said if God doesn't smack you upside the head, then you're a bastard, that's what it says. King James, I'm sure they don't say that in the new translations, because these guys are wusses that translate all this new stuff. What does he say? It's right before James, it'll be easy to find. It's in Hebrews, what does it say, what does it say? I can't find it! Yeah, I don't know where it is. I'm sure they use a lot nicer word, but anyway. King James Bible, that's what it is. Which means you're not, you're illegitimate. That you're not a child of God. If God never takes you to the woodshed and gives you a good swat on the rear, and it can come in all kinds of forms and, and ways. If that never happens to you, that's a bad sign for you. Because those whom the Lord loves, he smacks. And they use the analogy of children. Do you have children? You ever discipline those children? Of course, today... Half the audience would go, no, no, I don't believe in disciplining my children. That's why we have so many hellions. Somebody say amen. amen. Anyway, don't mean you beat the snot out of them and physically put them in death's door. I'm just saying just a little smack on the rear of a two-year-old gets their attention. If you have to get a big stick out, <laughs> you might need to calm down. All right. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed means a conversation. And then he says that the, fair, uh, the uh, prayer of a righteous man is very powerful. And uh, he talks about Elijah. Again, they would have known Elijah. Most of the Christians getting saved at this time, Gentiles would have had no idea who Elijah was and many of people listening here, I don't know who Elijah was, but he was a prophet. And uh, in the Old Testament, he was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. Very simplistic explanation. It's actually a great story. And as part of us, absolutely a scream. It's hilarious what Elijah did. But we'll leave it at that. Read your Bible. Okay, so then he ends with this final thought in his letter. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, which happens. It just happens, you know. Don't get so arrogant that you think no one can tell me what to do. I, I love Jesus and I, I think what I'm doing is just fine. Then you have two or three people come up to you and say, man, what you're doing isn't right. You need to listen. Because it's easy for us to wander from the truth. He says, if you see when someone's wandering from the truth, and if you should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. One of the most loving things you can do to someone is to correct them. Again, with correction. Nobody likes to be corrected today. Nobody wants to correct their children. Nobody wants God to ever correct them. God never does that. It must be something else. You know, not only do we correct our children, not only does God correct us, even as Christians, we should be correcting one another. And that's an act, attitude of love when you can start to, not only walk up and smack people in the head. But, but sometimes you just need to challenge people, okay? So that's James' letter. Boom, he sends this letter off. This is the first letter that the Christians are getting. They're scattered all over, and they're reading this, and they're growing in their faith, and they're seeing they're struggling. Okay, I'm struggling. And maybe what's good is as they're getting this letter, and they're seeing the way he's talking to people, he goes, oh, I, I guess we're okay. You know, sometimes you feel so bad. You know, like when I do my marriage seminars, people feel so much better when they leave because they think, oh, at least we're not the only crazy people. I'm serious, I'm true. I mean, you actually get to the point where you think no one's having these problems but me. And then you feel really bad. And in my business, you find out everybody 
deals with the same crazy, just different versions of it, different intensity levels of it. And people start feeling validated. And I think at some point, him writing and, and getting on some people and stuff and saying, hey, quit fighting. And so you start to realize, okay, this is what happens sometimes. And does that make any sense? Yeah, okay. I mean, if he's writing and talking about how everybody's always perfect and, and once you become a believer in Jesus, you should never have any issues and everybody just automatically loves each other and floats on a cloud from space to space. You read that, you're gonna get a little depressed, especially if you're yelling at people, right? So the fact that he brings out these things, I think, is validating and challenging at the same time, so it's all good. All right, so let's go back to Jax. We're done with this one. This is the first letter. And let's take a look at where we're at. Now, we know that Saul has become a convert. He comes to Jerusalem, and uh, Barnabas eventually takes him uh, from, where's Jerusalem, here it is, all the way up to uh, Antioch, which is way up here. It's off the map right now, but it's just over the line, actually, just up here. So then remember, before we took away here, that uh, the church was having a difficult time financially. And they took up money and they sent it to Jerusalem, which was an encouraging thing for them to show the Jewish brothers that these non-Jewish brothers are loving them and they're part of the same family. This is all new for them. See, at this point, like I said, he wrote to Jewish brothers and talked about Jewish things, all in the Christian context, but they're Jews. They still didn't quite comprehend this idea that you could not be a Jew and still be a Christian. It was new okay, God's doing some things, but it still was just, they weren't quite processing it. It's going to build to a head here. It becomes a major problem uh, that they went through. It was something none of us ever deal with anymore. But in the beginning, that was the major problem that Christianity faced. Not just the Romans trying to kill them. It was this issue about being a non-Jew. Could you be a devout follower of Jesus Christ and not be a devout Jew? Did you have to get circumcised? Did you have to obey all these rules and regulations and stuff like that? And it was a big deal. So at this point, you know, they, they hear about these guys way up there and Paul's up there and a bunch of Gentiles are getting saved, but they're kind of in their own little world here and they're not too worried about it. Well, they're having a hard time financially. These guys take an offering and they bring it to Jerusalem. And who do they send? They send Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas and Saul are the ones who come all the way down and they help the church out financially through this very difficult time. So uh, we know they went down there. Then it talks about Peter. Remember, he got out of jail and all this kind of stuff. And then first letter from James. Now we're gonna go back to Acts, the 12th chapter, verse 25. And we pick it up. Now when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, what mission? Of bringing the money from up here, down here, it says, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, who's also called Mark. Now, sometimes they called him John, <laughs> sometimes they called him Mark. I don't know, we don't have those problems today, I'm pretty much just Mark, all right? Uh, and usually, when Christians and Bible scholars and students of the Bible refer to him, we always call him John Mark. It's the only way you know who you're talking about. Remember John Mark? Oh yeah, we remember John Mark, okay? Uh, it wasn't John, it wasn't Mark, it was John Mark. Because there was a different John and there was a different Mark. I'm sorry, I'm just getting y'all confused. So, uh, now, uh, they went and they took with them John Mark. Now, you gotta remember this. He's setting you up because this becomes a big problem. John Mark becomes a real pain in Paul's rear at some point, which we're just getting to. And that's why they talk about this. All right, so now, they get John Marks with them. Okay, so here comes John Mark, and they all come down, and uh, uh, they return from Jerusalem, and now going back up, that's when they took John Mark with them, and they went back up to Antioch. Now, chapter 13, verse one. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul who had now become converted to Christianity. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit says to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. 
So now we begin with Paul's first missionary journey. There's what, like three major missionary journeys. So this is Paul's first missionary journey that the Holy Spirit tells them to go on. And notice the Holy Spirit told him to do this. I want to stress that because we'll find out that the next one, the Holy Spirit doesn't tell them to go, they just go. Which is important to know. Sometimes the Holy Spirit and God will really speak to you about stuff. But it doesn't mean that you should not do anything unless God tells you to do it. I will beat that horse to death when we get to that point, all right? Now, so the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and from there sailed to Cyprus. Okay, so now we're gonna change the map to the... Bigger map here. These are the missionary journeys of Saul who becomes Paul. Now, here's Jerusalem. There's Damascus. Uh, and now up here, see, remember that map's up there? That's where Antioch is. So now they're there, and they start off on the missionary journey, and they go off to here, to uh, the island of Cyprus. That's where they are. So they went down to Seleucia, and from there, they sailed over to Cyprus. I don't know how long it took them to get there, but you know, actually, this whole trip, today we could do like in six to, to 10 days. <laughs> took them a lot longer. <laughs> They don't have the kind of travel capabilities that we have. So they go to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, all right, you can see that on the map here, this little town here, they they arrived at this little town. Um, They proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. And John, John who? John Mark, all right, was with them as their helper. So we got Paul, we got Barnabas, and John Mark, he keeps talking about because he becomes a real pain. And uh, we'll get there in a minute, which is encouraging because some of us become pains at time and we're not the only ones. All right, so they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. So they go, la, 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 and they get here. All right, and they're preaching. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Remember, the Romans rule the world at this point. So there is the proconsul Sergius Paulus, and the proconsul, who was an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. Uh, this stuff wasn't done in a closet. I mean, Christianity is spreading all over the place. It's a big deal. They're hearing, everybody hears. In fact, we're gonna read how they start preaching some of these sermons in these synagogues. They always went to the Jews first. Remember he said when he got there, they went to the synagogues. But then they just started going everywhere and all kinds of people, even non-Jews were getting saved. Again, they're about to have this big fight about what that means. So that's not done yet. Uh, and, and they get here, and the proconsul undoubtedly has heard about this whole Jesus thing. Now, you have to remember, this wasn't this long ago. Jesus was here for three years. He did miracles that were off the chart. These people had friends, all right? The Bible says multitudes came to see Jesus. Man, somebody in your family who was gonna die or had died, and Jesus came and raised them from the dead, that tends to get around, all right? So people everywhere are talking about this Jesus, and they've been talking about John the Baptist. When Paul gets up here to preach, he starts talking about John, they all knew who John was. Because this whole area had been hearing about all these events that were going on. Again, it wasn't done, in, and they knew that Jesus, they heard about Jesus being crucified, that they heard the rumors of this resurrection, they heard about Christianity going on. A lot of these people were absolutely intrigued by all this stuff because the stories they're hearing are off the charts, just what Jesus did. But then the apostles come around and they're healing people and doing miracles and raising the dead and Paul's about to do a miracle that blows this guy's mind, okay, this stuff. And then you can imagine that proconsul from Rome probably shared that with other people. And this word goes everywhere. And I mean, it wasn't just that this was a new philosophy. I love reading, you know, listening to these uh, uh, teachers of uh, history, and they always talk about Christian, because it's a documented fact that Christianity spread all over the world. And when you listen to these people talk, these uh, pinheads from universities, oh, Christianity spread everywhere, because it, it, was, it was a new concept about how to know God. Uh, well, yeah, but it wasn't just that. When these guys showed up, God showed up. And miracles happened. Of course, these guys don't believe in that, so they can't put their heads there. But that's why Christianity took off. Like, it wasn't just because we had some cool new philosophy. Christianity spread like crazy. 
It went everywhere in a fraction of time. Considering, it's stunning. Because when they would preach the gospel, they would pray for people, God would show up and answer these prayers, and it just blew people's mind. If you'll let God be God, it's amazing what'll happen. Okay, and they didn't get really caught up in trying, I mean, they would make their arguments about God and debate things, you know, but usually with the Jews, when they came to the non-Jews, we'll see how they talk very differently. Their messages were very simple. When you share it with people, you don't have to get all that complicated, just the very basics, and it's amazing how the Spirit of God can touch people's lives. And uh, so anyway, when we come back next Wednesday, we'll pick it up there, and uh, we'll pick it up here when he goes before this uh, uh, proconsul Sergius Paulus, this Italian Roman, no doubt, and, uh, and what happens, and then how Christianity starts spreading, and then he comes here and it spreads all over here, and uh, it all leads up to the next epistle, which is the epistle to the Galatians, all right, which that's a funny one. Where'd you get that one? Just, we're gonna have a good time with this one because Paul's mad as a hornet through the whole thing. And we'll show you why he's mad as a hornet. Goes back to this whole idea about the whole Jewish thing, which leads up to the big council they had in Jerusalem to finally settle the question. We'll get it up there. You'll be educated beyond your intelligence. It'll be a wonderful thing. All right, y'all doing good? Praise God, we're done. See you next week.